Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mm, 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 mm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Mm. So we're, we're removing all that prior stuff, right? Can't wait for this yes. great intro you have for this one. Oh man! You ever get the the Willies right before it starts, where it's like, oh god, I have to remember the to say smart. What shit. happened in this movie? Um, I do need about three seconds of silence so that I can uh, clean up the this fan blowing. So. Uh. I want to talk about the sound design. This. I want to talk about throw up. <laughs> I'll show you the pod of the cast. Thank you so much for listening to Try Love, a literal roundtable podcast where we talk about movies that we saw at the Trilon Cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find us at Try Love Podcast on Twitter. I am Jason. I'm Cody. I'm Harry. I am Aaron, and I am I am happy to always be sitting on this side of the thing because then I get to go last in the name introductions. I don't mean that to Makes happen. You I you were say because it you want to hit me for saying I'll show you the pod of the cast. No, I will which... smack the shit out of you later, but that has nothing to do with it's a true <laughs> podcast of the common man. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Uh, uh, a podcast of and about and for the common man. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Today we're going to be talking about Barton Fink, a 1991 film by the Coen brothers, starring John Turturro uh, as a writer in New York and then Los Angeles, who makes it, gets his big break in Hollywood writing pictures, writing wrestling picture, a wrestling picture. A lot of wrestling. Not writing a sentence. wrestling picture. Specifically not writing a wrestling picture. <laughs> Eventually writing a wrestling happens picture. happens is... Uh, and uh, I'll just start off with my. We'll do the, we'll do the same thing. We'll uh, go toe to toe. Do you have a description that you'd like to? I talk? don't. But let's go. Just do it, and I'll, okay. I'll wing it. I'll, yeah, I'll do some uh, there's plenty of poetry in this ring too. I'll just I'll yes and you. You know what I mean? All right. So yeah. this is yeah. Thank you. Um, middle edition Schwartz. It's improv. We'll uh we'll yeah. go for, we'll go off it. This is my my summary of the movie. Uh, with dreams of writing the next great proletariat story in his mind, acclaimed New York playwright Barton Fink lands his first big Hollywood gig: a by the numbers wrestling picture. Up against deadlines and his own self-inflicted torture, he struggled to get past the first paragraph of his script. Unfortunately for him, he meets his heroes, damsels, and a few devils in the meantime. Do you, are you are you a poet? Are, are you a poet in your spare time? Because I'm I'm legitimately kind of amazed every time you write like a summary. I'm like actually like this is pretty good. Like it's a pretty good summary. If I saw this on like IMDb, I would not be mad at it. Wow. Not to take the piss out of that, because that is a correct take. I you know what would be, yeah, be really cute sometime is if we did a summary and just like went around the table, did a word at a time. That'd be when we do awesome. it. Sounds like it would take like yeah, I don't forever. <laughs> An hour. Is that something you do in like like fifth grade? Right? That's something you do. You know, with kids. I'm just yeah. thinking of fun things to do with my friends. But you know, we can just do this. Stupid it is podcast. It is instead. Cody Narvaez's birthday today. Great. You should have Cody's said yes. Cody's birthday today. Uh, happy birthday, Cody! Oh my god! Thank you for joining us. I'll show you the birth of the day. <laughs> Uh, Cody, seeing as uh, Cody, seeing as you're the birthday kid, what did you Barton think of this movie? I I'm hate gonna die. Everything. <laughs> I hate everything. Um, no, to answer the question, <laughs> please answer it. That is my answer. Uh, just for everything. Um, uh, yeah, I first saw Barton Fink about half a decade or so ago, uh, and I loved it. And I watched it uh, two nights ago again, and I still love it. Turns out. 
Um, John turns out. Yeah, uh, as it to turns out. Um, Don't try and I just did the thing, and then you're trying to do the thing with a different name, but it, it didn't work. You know what I mean? Like hmm. think and think is so. Are you going to be Barton something? I mean, Barton up the wrong tree. That, that's thank you, Harry. Okay, <laughs> please uh, continue. Take my I mean, this film. Boy I don't really know what to say. Like, I, it's John Good, man. Uh, <laughs> you keep going on with that joke. Um, I don't know. I just. You're trying to be a teacher. I'd really wish you'd be a Michael Learner more on this episode. Um, yeah, I what a load of Mahoney. <laughs> Keep Politos out of uh, out of movie video podcasts. games. Yeah, <laughs> video games. Um, well, check this out. This is uh, probably in my top two or three Coens. I don't Ooh. know. Uh, me too. That's kind yeah. of a hot take, but I like it's it. It's pretty actually. good. Yeah. yeah. Not that I've seen all of them. I'm not a completist with the Coens filmography, but I don't know. It's, this is god tier for them. I feel like when people put this in like their top two and three, it's like I don't, I don't probably, yeah, I don't think I agree with it. But it's like an, it's like an immediate like, oh, okay, all right. I see you are a man. Oh, of the you're a man of the, oh, you're you're a man of, a, you're a man of interesting. Wait, you just pulled, you just dig that one out of the take mine. Yeah, I um, wasn't, I wasn't on the raising Arizona yeah. cast, but like whenever I hear someone put that in their top three, I'm like, this guy's a fucking dipshit. Fucking <laughs> 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 great. Yeah, it's a fine movie. I'm something of a thinker myself. Uh, so this movie is about uh, the writer. Barton Fink, who gets his big break in Hollywood and then doesn't do anything about it and is beset by trials and tribulations we, uh, of increasingly mythical proportions. I know, I'm just trying How to say that. How did you feel about the movie? I liked it, it quite a bit. Uh, I watched it, like Cody, I watched it some years ago and then um, watched it more recently than that, uh, <clears throat> literally an hour and a half ago, just before we started recording. I was watching it because I fell asleep in the middle of it last night. Um, it's not a great way to watch the movie, but it still left a very good impression. Uh I only had time to finish the back half of it before you guys got here, so I watched half of it today and half of it last night. Uh, yeah, I liked it a lot. Um, it uh, We said on the last podcast about A Serious Man that it is uh, one of probably the Cohen's most personal movie, very like self-effacing, self-deprecating uh, mm-hmm. movie, um, because it's all about writers who don't write <laughs> and <laughs> how they create those problems for themselves. Um so I, I, through that lens, having watched more Coen Brothers movies now and having talked about them with friends, I think I was able to get a better grip on this movie than it was last time I watched it. But still, a bit eludes me. So I'm hoping to suss some of that out in conversation. Harry. Cool. Uh, Aaron. Okay. Uh, Cody. No. Uh, no, I, uh, so I think we're going to have an interesting... I, I kind of don't think this movie is as self-critical, maybe, as you do, but... Um, I like, yeah, I like this movie a lot. I would put this definitely in, like, the upper half of their films, um, which I have seen all of, by the way. So I am a definitive... Gross. Yeah. Man. Uh, yeah, I, th- I think it's great. I mean, it, this was, like, a big unknown for me in that I had seen it, uh, I think, twice before. Um, once, yeah, maybe in, like, high school, early, early college, and then once I was watching all the Coen brothers with a friend uh, kind of later in college. Um, and this was one that, like, I didn't have a ton of memory of, and there's, like, three or four, I'd say, that I don't have very clear, like, Burn After Reading, I know everything that happens in that movie, Big Lebowski, um, but, like, this and, like, Miller's Crossing and, like, Blood Simple uh, and maybe Intolerable Cruelty are the ones that, like, I don't have a very clear picture. So, like, revisiting it, um, I was kind, kind of presently, pleasantly surprised in that um, I think it connects with a lot of the themes that are often present in Coen Brothers movies. Um, I think it avoids a lot of the kind of pitfalls that are often in some of their movies as well. And I think it's just an interesting um, kind of, you know, it was a side project they made while making Miller's Crossing, and I think it works kind of interestingly in that in that manner. So, Yeah. Um, 
I uh, I also love this movie. I have a um, kind of long relationship with it, I guess. Um, I am, is, was a uh, aspiring, pretentious piece of shit. Um, and uh, in <laughs> high school, my uh, my friend Matt. Uh, I don't know if I should say his last name, um, but he's a good friend of mine. Uh, I miss him very much, my friend Matt. He uh, he always told me that we should watch this movie. Uh, he was uh, um, another aspiring writer, uh, and uh, and so this was sort of like the the movie that that we claimed, sort of ironically, because it, it's such a piss take on on writers. Um, okay. And uh, I just rewatched it recently again, and uh, being even maybe more pretentious as I get older and start to feel the walls closing in, um, it, it felt even more um, like like a skewering of uh, of a lot of. Um, writing in general uh the joke i made last night was that like we should just replace me on this podcast with rants that barton fink goes on (laughs) and i don't know if anybody would notice um so it it, it's like personal for me uh in that sense like i i think that this this movie targets um a lot of the personality flaws and quirks that um that are so endemic to writers and writing um, in such an intimate and self-effacing way, which is why I think it's so self-critical, uh, Aaron. Um, but it, it's interesting in that it also uses that as a staging ground to get into the real subject matter of this movie, which is that maybe the darkest subject matter that any Coen Brothers movie talks about. Um, I think that this is like borderline a nihilistic movie um, in a really fascinating way. Um, uh, I like it a whole lot. Uh, I also think it might be my in my top three Coen Brothers. It's a tough movie to love in mm-hmm. some ways because it's so dark and it's so um, bitter. Like this is a bitter, mm-hmm. uh, angry <laughs> movie. There's so little. There's no joy in it. I would say yeah. it's not a. Yeah. It's not a like fun or enjoyable movie. It's like maybe the only Coen Brothers movie that I could describe as like full of self hatred. Um, oh, yeah. Like, this this movie feels like, to me, and again, like, maybe I'm projecting, who knows, but it, it feels like it's it's a self-loathing. It's a movie made by people who understand self-loathing, um, and that's interesting. Um, this, to me, Barton Fink does not feel like a, like an autobiographical, or like, a, he doesn't feel like a stand-in to the Coen brothers for me. Um, his, kind of, his... A purported aim, I guess, in in creating art, uh, yeah, the, the quote I mentioned earlier, but it's not to create, like, you know, popular works. It's to, he says, create a new living theater of and about and for the common man. Um, he is essentially creating art that is, a, is trying to speak to very distinctly the lower classes that he is not a part of um, and kind of romanticize them. He says in the same way that very much know, kings are romanticized, uh, you know, why can't the struggle of the everyday, you know, street sweeper, why can't that be on the same pedestal that we put kings on, et cetera, et cetera. His, his, his uh, philosophy on it is that, excuse me, um, Sorry. Uh, it, you had to do a cough in the middle of it? Fink. I was burping, yeah. Oh, you're drinking a Coke. It's dangerous. I mean, you know, vomit in pus is, like, the subject matter it of this movie. It is such a fucking gross um, movie. Uh, but, but his philosophy is that, that man is noble in the end, yeah. right? Is that even the, the fishmongers in the, in the lower class, like, like they, are, they are just as, as noble and beautiful as uh, 
any like romanticized subject matter in literature. We should yeah. write great and beautiful, moving literature about these people because they are just as as beautiful and full of interiority as as I am and as yeah. anybody is. Um, and it's it's a fundamentally condescending. Um, it is, but do you approach. feel like that is? To me, the Coen Brothers have never been about that. To me, the Coen Brothers have. I mean, we've even criticized the Coen Brothers for being too. Concerned with making movies that maybe represent some facet of themselves, right? Um, and I think they seem pretty content to just do that, right? Like they, they, most of their movies are starring kind of middle-aged white dudes, um, which I'm maybe hesitant to to describe this movie as, just because it's about a, a, a Jewish guy in 1941. Um, but they, they seem very content to make Coen Brothers movies, and they get criticized for it a lot. And even in interviews, they've kind of always handled that question badly. Um, and to me, this seems like a bit of a criticism of the kind of artist who wants to speak to experiences that that he may not know about. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that's valid. I'm not sure I agree. I, I just think that the, the Coen Brothers are really cagey about what they want to do. Extremely and cagey. They are. And I think that's pointed in order yeah. to avoid the fact that they are Barton Fink. <laughs> Um, I like. I honestly, I think that that really like. I think that the Coen Brothers understand and are as pretentious as anyone. And sure. they, in order to sort of get around that, they they couch it in a lot of different sort of um, obfuscations. Um, I think that that even their their approach to absurdity and sort of like darkness is a means of obfuscating that. But like you look at like movies like Blood Simple and Fargo and like they are Barton Fink movies. Like they are they are movies written about like true stories, quote unquote, and how real people would respond in these situations, right? And like they're the difference there is that they, they have this um absurdist point of view for the universe, but it but it's still an arbitration onto a, a sort of like they still have manifestos. Like, like Joel and Ethan Cohen, hella have written a manifesto, even if they've never published it. Like, they have a philosophy for their new theater, at least in sure. my opinion. Um, and I think that this movie is um, like a really scathing, uh, like self-bullying about that impulse uh, and where it comes from and, and what it is. Um, but. I mean, I, I I think your point is valid, right? Like, like they aren't Barton Fink, at least on the surface. Yeah, maybe they secretly are, but I don't think they... I, they're, I think they are taking the piss out of a, a character that maybe they kind of despise uh, in the artistic world that I would hope they don't identify with this character, at least based on the movie, right? I think um, that they super do, but maybe that's our difference. That's tra- that's very sad for the Coen brothers, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Well, I mean, um, but that's that's what works for me, right? Is that, like, like the reason why... I, I hate to keep coming back to Fargo, but, like, the reason why Fargo didn't work for me is because, like, the um, the point that they were trying to make didn't feel earned to me because it wasn't one that they embodied necessarily. Mm. Whereas Barton Fink, like, super works for me because, like, it is such a self-skewering. And, like, the idea that they identify with Barton Fink as much as they do makes it work for me. You know what I mean? Do you get what I'm trying to say? I guess. I, yeah, I just... I don't know. Um... It, it to me at least in their work it seems like they have never tried to be Barton Fink like they've never tried to do what Barton Fink is doing right like Barton Fink isn't even trying to do what Barton Fink's doing I mean like like his ostensible uh, approach to 
art and literature isn't what he's actually doing. Like, in the end, what he's all about is plumbing the depths, so to speak, to dredge up something from inside, something honest. Oh, shit, you got a quote you wrote down. Yeah, sorry. (laughs) Uh, Like, he says writing comes from a great inner pain, the revelation that one must do something for one's fellow man to do something to somehow ease their suffering. Uh, So, really, he's all about depicting his own personal pain. Yeah, uh, well, or like that's I, or I ostensibly finding it because he thinks that having that personal pain in interiority is evidence of his self worth. Right? Exactly. There's like a, a note that I wrote down while watching the rest of it today was that uh, he talks so much about writing about the common man, telling of their plight, um, and like creating theater for the masses, theater for for the commoner. And what he's actually doing is like creating a weirdly fictionalized version of what the common man is and does, and then reviles at the idea initially and throughout of creating a picture a motion picture that is explicitly created for the masses yeah ironically yeah. right like these very oh, popular and, fighting films and like he the irony is, is potent right like right. he also doesn't listen to charlie at all he cuts him off oh yeah pointedly, like i just got many you times he's uh, like i could i could have i could tell you a story man is yeah very popular we, line. yeah we've all got stories that's the point yeah and, i start i started the scenes where he uh starts so john goodman plays Charlie, who is uh, his kind of next door neighbor in the hotel, um, he is Charlie Meadows, purportedly a an insurance salesman, like the everyday is. Yeah, his name's Charlie Meadows, right? Like he is the fucking Willie Lowman going selling He's shit the on the road. Man. He's like an archetype for Barton Fink, um, and Barton Fink calls him that to his face. Yeah. And- it definitely condescending. It's to extremely him. condescending. Um, mm-hmm. And every time, uh, every time he's like, you know, I actually have some stories you could make. He cuts him off and goes, "Yeah, that's a good point. You all and have he goes stories." Blah, blah, blah. Again, and yeah. um, every, he does it like three times in the first scene where they meet. And every time, I just I like physically started yeah. like moving in my seat, like I was so pissed off at what was happening. Well, and that's what sets up yeah. Charlie's uh, turn. Right? It, yeah, it's his decision to torment uh, Barton Fink. But we can get into that. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, and also just like. Man, that first interaction with them is so great. Um, the moment when Charlie apologizes for, I think it's the first scene, he apologizes for being patronizing to Barton, but Barton yeah. is nothing but patronizing mm-hmm. entirely. Um, and just like li- like little moments like that where we see where um, you know, Charlie says, oh man, my problems like don't even amount to a whole hill of beans. And I don't know, if Barton Fink was really about the common man, he would jump in and be like, no dude, like they totally do. Yeah. Yeah, the the thematic parallel that I was talking about um, in Serious Man is that, like uh, Larry, Barton Fink doesn't actually care about anybody else. Like, he's completely within his own head. Uh, in he's, he's a totally self-obsessed narcissist because he only cares about his work. Um, and yeah, and he... that's, that's the part, the writing, uh, that, that's such a poignant piss take because, like... I, it, it's maybe, a, it's almost a cliche, but, like, writers are that self-obsessed, right? And they are, like, only ever thinking about what they're writing about. Um, right, and, like, from the very beginning, when he's first given this contract to, or offered the contract to come write a picture in Hollywood, he, uh, like, the movie begins with the ending of one of his plays, most critically received so far, and people are showering him with praise, and he's like, that he doesn't need that to feel successful, that he doesn't need, like, external he praise. He loathes it, in fact, because these right. people don't get it. Which is the most head-up-his-ass type yes. way to look at it. Like, if he's created a piece that he believes is something that's for the common man, that is written with that person in mind and with that audience in mind and trying to create new theater, and he's getting positively reviewed for it, that should be, like, success. But he decides to... Well, but to him, the, those that class, uh, this is a really class 
uh, yeah. Asian yeah. Movie. Oh yeah. But that that class of people aren't aren't the common man, and so like the fact that they like it or understand it is some sort somehow evidence of his own inadequacy. Yeah. It's it's very distinctly uh, kind of. Um, comparing the the typical audience, even today, the typical audience of of your average theater, right? Um, you know, Hamilton comes to town. Um, you know, that is a very different audience from who goes to see Infinity War in theaters, right? Like theater tickets are not so much. Well, oh yeah, you mean like class wise? Yeah, yeah. Definitely. Theater tickets are, are one hundred and fifty dollars for like back oh, back row. Yeah, I thought you were yeah. just talking politically. Those are both pretty. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, tepid uh, neoliberal. Yeah. yeah, but but in terms of like class separation, okay. yeah, sure, right? Like he is he is the audiences like he does receive critical and audience acclaim um, in New York City, which is kind of this hub of the theatrical world. Um, and then he comes out to to L. A. and he starts to actually write what I think was a, a good point you made earlier. That like he. Tr- he is being hired to make movies that are actually for the masses, right? Literally. Like, um, they are, and he can't do it. And they sell well, and they're popular, and they're mainstream, and they're for literally the common man, right? Yeah. And he reviles at the idea. Yeah. Because he, he doesn't actually want him. to do because that. Because it's yeah. beneath... Exactly. That's not what he wants to do. What he keeps... Like, the question I had in my mind from the first time that he... From one of those first lines where he, like... I don't remember if he actually says that he loathes the praise that he gets for his uh, plays. It's clear either way. Yeah. Uh, but... Like I was like, what? Well, what is um, success for him then? What is like? What is his ideal work? And then we see that near the end of the film, where we where we get like hints of his finished script, and it's literally just rehashes of what he's done before, just with like a, a newly yeah. yeah a newly internalized like rebirth. Right, but that because to Barton Fink and to the other writer in this movie, um, played by uh, John Mahoney. Shout us to John Mahoney. I think he's one of my favorite actors. Was honestly. he? Is he the guy from Frasier? The dad from Frasier? I don't. I don't. I've never seen a single episode. of No, Frasier. you've never seen Frasier. Wow. Nope. I'm pretty sure it's the dad. He's the dad from Frasier. Go ahead. He's the dad from Say Anything. uh, And he is um, also in Moonstruck, one of my favorites. I still haven't seen Moonstruck. Yeah, nobody does. Those are all fucking Barton Fink. Barton Fink, Moonstruck, (laughs) Say Anything, all very similar romantic comedies. (laughs) Right, exactly. Uh, Where is... Um, I'm going to look up where... So he's in Frasier. He's in... I'm just... Thanks, Google. Frasier, Say Anything, Moonstruck, Tin Men, Eight Men Out, which is a baseball movie that I haven't seen. Um, and should Barton Fink? Hey, wow! Look at that. Um, he was an ants. Hudsucker hmm. Proxy, Iron Giant. What? All right, Harry. You were uh, saying about the other writer, W. B. Mahoney. Um, no, not yeah. Mahoney. Mayhew. W. B. Mahoney. <laughs> um, in in both their cases, like like writing is a manifestation of their exceptionalism, right? Like they, especially in Barton Fink when he's talking to um, W. P. Mayhew uh, about his gift. But of course, we get the sense that Barton Fink's also talking about his own gift. Is like the struggle of the writer is that they have this pain inside of them, and this pain marks them out as exceptional and separate from other people. At one point, Barton Fink says, "I have pain most people don't know anything about," and so like this suffering uh, is born of of greater empathy and, and insight than than the common man can understand. And their struggle in existence is to make that to turn that that insight and empathy into something that speaks to humans and, and makes them understand themselves and mm-hmm. the world better. Um, and it's, it's, it's bullshit, right? Like it, it's all this narcissistic driven exceptionalist nonsense where like what Barton Fink really wants to do is have everybody worship and adore him. That's what he's really looking for is to have even the common man, not just 
the the um, insular class community that he is a part of, that he sees himself in, um, adore him, but to have everyone adore him. And that's what um, Audrey Taylor, played by uh, Judy Davis, understands and gives to W.P. Mayhew is this personal validation because really Barton Fink is just this um, neurotic individual who wants to be told he's doing a good job, right? Like yeah. who, who wants to be worshipped and adored by the right people, by people that he respects. Um, and it's kind of interesting that he, he doesn't actually know what to do whenever he is actually paid any of that respect, right? Like there's a scene um, kind of midway through the movie where he's talking with his studio head um, and he's having a conversation about how he... Um, he he hasn't written anything like he, he has writer's block and is not able to write like a single sentence and he has a meeting with uh, the studio head to talk about his his script so far and he says you know um, he basically bullshits to him and says hey you know uh, I uh, I don't like talking about my ideas I prefer to write them Work down progress, yeah. uh, it, you know it kind of ruins it by speaking it out loud um, extremely relatable yeah well <laughs> to be honest true uh, and the scene ends with the studio head like worshipping him and like kissing his feet like hey we respect our writers we love our writers like we love you and it's like Barton Fink wants that kind of attention from everybody but the minute it actually is shown to him for a second he is extremely uncomfortable it is a bizarre scene scene too well and and he's always got he's always got that that justification right is that like it's not the right kind of praise it's a studio head it's not the common man yeah yeah um but but basically his struggle is to find the life of the mind and depict it um, and that's that's the struggle that that is satirized uh, in this movie. Um, what should we? Should, I was going to say, should we talk about the hotel a little bit? I would yeah, like to touch would on love that. the on setting that. of the hotel. The the Earl, right? The Earl, E A R L E. Yeah, um, it's where he's set up. Uh, it's he chooses it specifically because it is not so Hollywood, as they put it. <laughs> Uh, it is a rundown dump where he and apparently John Goodman, maybe a couple of other people, are it the only other residents. It's mostly empty. Yeah, <laughs> I, mean, I, I think is, that's, that's mostly the thing, thing right? Yeah. shoes outside yeah. of every door. Right, that's the thing. Like, it's Yeah, there are shoes outside of every door. There can't be too many people living here, though, because apparently Steve Buscemi is the only employee. You know what I love is that like his introduction to this in this movie. My when, name is Chet. <laughs> when, when Barton Fink Chet. First, first gets there. He rings the bell, and it rings for, like, a solid 20 seconds, just this one tone, monotone. And then, um, and you hear, uh, like, footsteps coming through, and Steve Buscemi just emerges from Yeah, it's like a trap door in the the floor. Yeah, you expect him to have, like, an Igor A master type voice, and then he just, like... My name's Chet. Uh, Chet. That's that's also a great motif (laughs) in this movie, is that all of the quote-unquote common men um, are weird. They're they're like they're like scary, <laughs> they're like demonic, like off putting. Yeah, yeah. Um, and like like it's that's such a good motif too because like the the condescension that's inherent to Barton Fink is so much about how like he has this romanticized idea of the common man, not just as people, but as like this weird sort of homogenous community of people who share these common values and these common experiences, who aren't people essentially, but just like archetypes for him to depict. Um, just like characters for his literal stage plays, um, who don't have any interiority of their own. So, like that's the that's the ultimate irony of Barton Fink is that that he is ostensibly so interested in depicting the interiority of the common man, and he doesn't even believe it exists. He doesn't even believe that these people exist as anything except for something for him to depict. Yeah, right. He denies their their agency entirely. I mean, you can see it in the way that he interrupts Charlie. Charlie is like a, a stage prop for him. 
Um, and it, it's really funny to see how how completely divorced from reality his understanding is from these real people. Uh, and it turns out to be his fucking tragic undoing, yeah. right? Like, but um, yeah. So the, the hotel. We see that early on in the hotel. Yeah, yeah. yeah it, uh, it it's the ugliest fucking thing. It, it kind of looks like the apartment from Blue Velvet a little bit. Like, and in terms of like totally, just. It's, it's super like, outdated. I mean, even in 1941, it's super outdated. Nothing it's like falling apart. Yeah. I, I had a fun, uh, shitty moment where I uh, remarked that Barton Fink's apartment kind of looked like mine. And then I was like, oh, wait, it's bigger than mine. <laughs> <laughs> it's oh, like geez, substantially dude. bigger than mine. Uh, uh, anyway. they this did is this, nice. This place is nice. Yeah, you got a good place. As the movie goes on, like he's a lot of this movie is... Or at least a lot of this world is seen in this apartment where uh, you've just got the basically the four walls in the bathroom... Uh, and a squeaky bed in the middle where Barton Fink does all of his, all the writing he doesn't do for most of the movie. Um, but each time that we come back to that room, it looks more and more like grotesque and awful, but not on, in an obvious way. Like the walls are sort of bleeding adhesive yeah, the, because the, the wallpaper is falling off. The wallpaper is peeling off and, and the adhesive is like pus. And like, like it's the yellow wall, and uh, The wall underneath is super like flesh colored. Yeah. It's the most disgusting thing ever in the entire world so like the more and more we learn more time we spend in this room the more bizarre and unearthly it's it and looks there's the mosquito that flits around the room even though according to uh um tony shalhoub's character ben geisler um geisler 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 um <laughs> uh mosquitoes don't exist in la because it's a desert and they populate in They're the swamp. In a swamp yeah um i love yeah, this we'll is a great heat movie. Everybody always talks about how hot it is, and everybody's sweating all the time. Very stray dog. We want to talk about our favorite like heat pieces of art. I love like just some I hot just ass fucking. Fun. Yeah, but uh, uh, I love a, Crime I love and Punishment. Is all about being just a fucking hot ass city, and like I guess I'm gonna kill an old lady because it's so fucking hot yeah, all the time. I wonder if that's a reference. What? This movie, Crime and Punishment. Probably not. Maybe yeah. I guess, but yeah. I'm Twelve Angry Men references. Do the right thing. Do the right thing. Yep. Hottest yeah. day of the summer. Yep. Uh, it's going only going to get hotter. Okay. I'll throw out the Sandlot. Twelve Angry Men's a good one, but like yeah. I think of just like the Sandlot. It's just a bunch of. It's a sweaty kid baseball summer. Yeah, it's great. Uh, uh, stray Dog. Yeah, I, stray Dog for sure. Well, it's a hot one. Like seven inches from the mid I like that song. Uh, Magic Mike XXL. And we're going to talk about the rest of uh, the hotel. Uh, can I, You're can valid. I, I'm wonderful. As far as the hotel goes, um, I think the... While we're talking about great motifs, uh, I think the idea of, like, this... Um, this hotel that slowly, like, changes and adapts to the person inhabiting it over time is such, like, a good, like, thing... Just... This is like a weird, maybe Harry only reference here. Maybe, maybe Jason too. But uh, Silent Hill Four, the room. I was about to say Silent Hill, but Fuck I never yeah. played. Fuck never, yeah. played never played. Cody, four. leave. You've never played this shit. Get out of here, buddy. Bye, bitch. Uh, My name is Cody Narvison. I've never played this shit. Uh, What's your at before you leave? Uh, I can't read. Cody can't play video games. <laughs> I'm gonna do it. Okay, so Silent Hill is a series. Um, I can't play video games. I just choose not to. Please wow. explain it's, Silent okay, Hill for the room. Silent Hill uh, is a series of uh, kind of like horror video games oh, where okay. uh, people like separately come to this town that is like enveloped in fog and is like I don't know. There's monsters and shit, and it's like a representation of their inner fears. And Silent Hill for the room uh, is set in uh, one person's apartment, and they, like, go to different areas, but it's, like, 
it's in like first person camera and they're walking around their apartment and over the course of this very very scary game this apartment like changes like if you look out the peephole at the beginning of the game there's nothing there later in the game there's like someone standing like very scary just like Ooh. looking in uh, you open a fridge at some point and there's like a dead body in there that's like nonsensical architecture is very big in Silent Hill yeah it rules it's cool uh, um, when he said Harry only reference I thought he was going to reference uh, Kafka's Metamorphosis we could talk about Metamorphosis Hell or yeah. the yellow wallpaper what, what, what can we talk I, that's about? a clear reference <laughs> or too. Emily Dickinson's I Saw a Fly When I Died the poem yeah. or uh, T.S. Eliot's The Halloween so this has been yeah. fun Cody we're talking about <laughs> I'm something just doing, I'm Barton thinking right now <laughs> I just I don't know something about like, like Barton stinking. Something about like a motel room is like the ultimate like American representation of like a place that you are foreign to that should feel at home but always feels well, just fucking terrible. It's that liminal space, right? Because you're not. It's not intended oh, for long term. It's not intended for long term residency, right? Yeah. Like Chet asks him at the beginning, "Are you a, a trans or a res?" And he's like, "What? Are you transient or are you a resident? Are you staying here or, or are you?" Well, I'm here indefinitely. Oh, that makes you a res, and he like sets him up with the residency speech. Um, so like it's it seems to be a place where that's always occupied because you always see new shoes outside of the doors every time the Chet comes by to polish them. Uh, but nothing ever really happens. No like life seems to exist. You can check out any time you like, but you can never leave. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. Uh, um, they stab and stab it with their steely knives, but they just can't kill the bees. Lost Highway has a very good uh, hotel in it. Cool. Just gonna do you want to make this episode hotel. about Lost Highway, or do you want to talk about Barton Fink? We can talk about Lost Highway. You want to talk about Lost Highway? Like no, I've really never seen Lost Highway. <laughs> uh, uh, the, 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 the hotel is a great, I think, the, like, the best place, because it, it feels at once like it, we're, it's our home for this movie, but it's so incredibly foreign and bizarre, and it only gets more bizarre the more and more stressed out and um, alienated Barton Fink feels. It, it also has, an, has a facade that is stripped away to reveal the sort of, like... Literally horror within um, much the way that the characters in this movie strip away their facade to reveal the abyss yeah. essentially well it destroys uh, everybody who comes in there like Barton Fink is driven essentially to, mad- to madness um, Charlie if he ever was uh, like a normal person is by the end a uh, mass murderer either because he lives there yeah because he because he lives there um, and uh, Man, that that line we'll get to it at the end but like it's such a putting the tiger on the table to use that phrase again that I know you guys like so much. I don't um, know what that means. But uh, what does that mean? I've it, never heard that. It means that. like just making the t- subtext text. Oh, okay. Like, oh, yeah. Explicit. Sure. Um, but I've used it before and was made fun of, which is why I'm bringing it up. Rightfully so. I and apologize. Now you fuckers don't even remember. Wow. Callous fucks. So old. <laughs> that is um, your fishmongers. Yeah. <laughs> you monsters. <laughs> Sorry, that came out really Bernie Sanders, and I didn't no, mean to be No, that was super John Turturro. Uh, super panicked was, John Turturro. Uh, but he, I'm a writer, you monsters. This is my uniform. This is how I serve the common man. Um, <laughs> I create. Somebody punch him. Yeah, please. Somebody did. Um, anyway, uh, I just love that line uh, at the end. Um, you think I made your life hell? Take a look around this dump. You were just a tourist with a typewriter, Barton. Hell yeah. Barton, I you're just here. a tourist with a typewriter. I live here. Don't you understand that? And oh. you come into my home and complain that I'm making too much noise. And he says that so sadly and sweetly, John. Mm-hmm. This, yeah. Like, very ironically, one of John Goodman's sweetest roles, right? I think it's yeah. one of his best. Probably his best. Absolutely his best. Absolutely. Yeah. Also, I feel like people don't talk about the fact that John Goodman is a fucking amazing actor. I feel like, like he's like a character. Accepted, yeah. Right? Like, I, which is maybe. fine, but like... 
I think we need to highlight that. John Goodman is the greatest pop-up actor of all time that I'm just watching a movie and just like, oh, fuck, there's John Goodman in this shit. Like, I didn't even know that. That increases my approval rating of that movie by, like, a good 35% at least, no matter what the rating Uh, is. Also a great voice actor. Yes. Um, oh, perfect. What does he voice acted? Uh, he's in um, Monsters, Inc., most notably. Oh, so, okay. He just has a great he also, voice. Like, uh, he does. Pacha in Emperor's New Groove. That's right. right? Yeah. That's right. Wow. Oh, man. Uh, I want to be friends with John Goodman. Um, the other character who's, who's completely ruined, the other character who's completely ruined is, it seems to be like people who are in this space, are in the hotel, who aren't like residents, or aren't explicitly residents, are the ones who are completely, like, Audrey, Audrey Taylor? Uh, again, W.P. Mayhew's secretary, who actually does most of his writing, it seems, yep. um, is dead after her first night in the apartment, <laughs> like viciously murdered, um, and that sets off the the third act. But uh, yeah, it's it's, it's 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 a literalization of uh, Barton Fink's internal space, right? Or and maybe humanity as a whole's interiority, which really comes around when you realize that that killing and the subsequent cover up that Charlie helps him with is what really spurs him. To like actually knuckle down and finish this first Should draft we talk of the about, script. Uh, Audrey Taylor and W.P. Mayhew, because I feel like that's that's really important. To it's the it's idea. kind of the crux of, of where Barton right. goes with the rest of this movie. Yeah, let's start. So with it. Um, when Barton Fink is struggling to write his script, um, Tony Shalhoub's character um, Ben Geisler uh, recommends that he seek out uh, and get. Um, advice from an established writer. Uh, it, one of my favorite lines in the movie <laughs> yeah. is, is uh, Barton Fink and uh, Geisler are eating lunch together and uh, Barton Fink says, well, where should I find a writer to mentor me? And uh, Geisler goes, he's like this really great, fast-talking studio executive and he goes, uh, Jesus, just throw a rock in here and you'll hit one. And then he, he starts walking away and he turns around and he says, hey, Fink, do me a favor? And he says, yeah. He says, throw it hard. It's <laughs> <laughs> like a really, really good... Uh, yeah. Um, and that scene, um, I think um, uh, Ben Geisler is double fisting milk and whiskey. <laughs> and at one point, he like goes to drink the milk, and yeah. then he drinks the whiskey, and he yeah. sort of like does a double. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, Barton Fink goes into the bathroom, and he finds W.P. Mayhew vomiting. Um, vomit is a metaphor in this movie for uh, what you're really doing when you're writing, what you're really expelling from the inside yourself. All that beauty is just vomit. Um Anyway, he is mentored by um, this guy, Mayhew, who is this apparently genius writer. Um, Barton Fink calls him the greatest novelist of our time. Now he's in Hollywood. He can't write for shit. Um, he, he's a souse, uh, he's referred to as. Souse! Again, by uh, Geisler. Uh, he says, he's a great writer. A great souse! <laughs> what is souse? Um, like a drunk. Uh, he is an alcoholic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, okay. uh, but Mayhew has the secretary, Audrey... Um, who, like Jason said, actually does all of his writing and takes care of Mayhew and thinks that he's a genius despite the fact that she's the genius. It's like um, a very much the spoilers for... Can I, spo- can I spoil the movie you know I'm going to yeah, spoil? Yeah, just do it. Uh, yeah, it's very much the wife. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it Glenn, is the wife. Glenn Close. Literally, uh, right. Um, the wife. You know what it was about. Uh, vaguely. It's in the trailer. It's a good movie. You should see the wife. Um, at one point she says empathy requires understanding. I think she's the only person in this movie who has within what passeth show. I think that's the uh, the Hamlet line. Um, but she's the only person who actually makes the time to attempt to understand and empathize with the interiority of other people, um, which is hilariously she gets killed. why she's a good writer. 
Yeah. I like it. Oh, it yeah. seems like it, there's a funny part part here where like maybe Barton isn't wrong about what writing is. Like maybe, but maybe um, it's not about your pain. It's about your ability to understand other people's pain. Mm-hmm. Um, at least in a in a more tender movie, maybe that would be the point. Except that this character is killed. She comes to Barton's apartment after Barton wakes her up in the middle of the night uh, and f- basically forces her to come over. Beg, to his begs her begs to her. come over and um, help him. Right. Doesn't particularly care about her feelings on that subject. Um, she's also abused by W.P. Mayhew. Um, everybody puts up with it because W.P. Mayhew is apparently a genius. Um, there's a great scene where uh, he hits her in a in a park. It sucks. Um, Barton Fink calls him a son of a bitch and then says, but don't get me wrong, he's a great writer. It's like, yeah? Um, one of my favorite lines also is that uh, when when Barton Fink is talking about how writing comes from a great inner pain and you have to you have to plumb the depths to find your gift um, and that uh, W.P. Mayhew is cutting himself off from his gift to his alcohol uh, W.P. Mayhew says no I'm I'm building a levee I'm putting up a levee to keep that raging river of manure from lapping at my door so Mayhew knows that inside him is a raging river of manure uh, which this movie uh, agrees with yeah. and will yeah um, but anyway um, she's the person who Ghost writes for Mayhew. Uh, she comes over. Uh, she and um, Barton end up having sex um, because, again, she like that's what she does for writers. Is is she sort of like gives them this validation? I think at one point she says, "All you really need is a little is someone to understand you, someone to care about you." Mm-hmm. Um, John Goodman's character Charlie Muntz hears it through the pipes because he can hear everything that's going on in the building. Again, he's... He- yeah, he is like a supernatural kind of presence. He like is. he he knows everything that goes on in the hotel. Um, is aware of it and because he like lives there. Great camera shot where the the camera as they're having sex, like we're starting to have sex, I guess, goes down the drain pipes and you start hearing all of these different sounds. Uh, from the hotel and the sexual sounds turn into screams, which is like a this is a horror movie. Um, yeah, one of my favorite um, subtitles for this movie was. As the intercourse was happening, in parentheses, Barton moans. <laughs> Barton moans. Bart. <laughs> Barton moans. Um, yeah, Audrey's uh, death marks like a pretty distinct shift in this movie. Um, and I remember, like, as it happened, like I looked at the runtime. It's like we have another half of the movie to yeah, go. Yeah. Like the mosquito is squashed. Uh, the corpse is rolled over. We find out Audrey is dead. And it's man, I this is maybe mean uh the first time i watched this movie i watched it with my dad uh and he is um maybe ironically more sensitive about movies than i am and uh he was like really really off put by uh, maybe because he didn't like see it coming but like when he when he saw the like blood coming out of uh audrey he was like like out he was like i'm not wow. like i'm not doing <laughs> uh and uh and th- that really like drove home for me how impactful that scene is um, it's a, it's also a great scene that like like uh, the mosquito that that has been tormenting Barton lands on Audrey's body, and he doesn't know she's dead. Uh, he thinks that she's sleeping. Uh, he has this sort of uh, internal um, debate with himself and ends up slapping the mosquito on her body while she's sleeping. So like also great Barton, like what a great what a great character moment that is. Uh, but that's when he discovers that she's dead, mm-hmm. uh, and then the bo- the blood flows out of her body. Right. Um, so what does that shift for the? You said it's a market nice. shift for the rest of the movie. What is? What do you think that means, and how does it change? I mean, other than it, other than it becomes 
like an, an entirely different movie. Like the 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 no, you the first uh, half or so, um, and not that it isn't this to some extent in the latter half, but the first half more so d- discusses uh, in its own way, like Barton's ability to get in his own way, and that's like. I don't know, kind of what that mosquito is to me. Like, the mosquito comes from a choice he made to inhabit something that wasn't, like, that was much less Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Um, and, like, for every for every day that he isn't writing, he's, like, confined to this prison. And so that, like, that, the bites or, you know, the puscules he's getting on his face are just, like, a constant daily reminder of that yeah, fact. Yeah, to, to me, the, the mosquito represented, like, the um, interpolation of reality into the sort of romanticized ideal that Barton had in his head. Is that, like, I'm going to go and I'm going to live in this, this uh, bohemian, apartment, this yeah. bohemian place, and I'm going to write for the common man, uh, and it's going to be great. And in reality, like... Oh, if only like if only my neighbors didn't make so much noise, and if only I didn't keep getting stung by this mosquito. Barton um, Fink, I brought great up gentrifier. that Emily Dickinson uh, poem. It's one of my favorite poems. Uh, I didn't um, bring it with me. Apologies. You can find it online. Um, I think it's called "I Saw a Fly When I Died," and it's about this person. The the narrator wants to have a beautiful death, um, and sh- she wants to like like this moment to be a, a summary of her life sort of like in the in the grand sort of haiku sense um but there's a fucking fly in the room where she's dying and all she can think about is how it's buzzing and it's ruining the moment and then she dies <laughs> and that's it and like i couldn't stop thinking about she that dies, with, the, with the mosquito um wow uh this poem rules can uh, I, it's one of my favorites i heard a fly Please buzz when i died the stillness in the room was like the stillness in the air between the heaves of storm uh the most frightening thing about this room to me is uh, there are a few great scenes of it where it's just quiet as all hell. Um, like the sound of silence, so to speak. It just like, yeah, just like he's alone with himself and this mosquito and nothing else. Yeah. And it is horrifying. The yeah. sound design in this movie is great. We should and, talk about it later. Yeah. And like, like what a, that's a great point. That was only a fourth of the poem. Sorry. Yeah. But yeah, uh, I, I'm you not gonna read the rest. should read the whole poem. Yeah. Uh, it's amazing. But, um, like the the reason why I said that this is maybe the Cohen's darkest movie is because like I think this movie makes maybe the most pointed statement about like what humanity really is like like speaking of mysteries that aren't mysteries in this movie like like humans are evil <laughs> like 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 water and shit like uh, like there's pus keeps coming out of um, Charlie's ear because he has an ear infection pus is dripping down from the walls. Uh, Barton Fink has IBS basically and has to consume Pepto-Bismol. People are puking. People are throwing up. The thing that's inside us is bile, right? And like, like all of this beauty that that Barton thinks that he sees that he's projecting onto the world, um, it, it's something that he wants to be inside of him, uh, and it's not. In reality, we have the mosquito, and we have. Uh, ear infections and the the pipes blood underneath yeah. blood and, and and pus underneath the surface um and uh um that's the sort of in my opinion that the horror of this movie is the idea that like like we're we're taking down the idea that that writing about life realistically is writing about it beautifully this movie really comes down hard on the opposite end right we're like 
like the reason why Barton can't write about the common man is because the common man isn't beautiful because nobody's beautiful. Exactly. Like I said, he 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 creates this <laughs> fictionalized version of the common man. This like a uh, lot of like you were saying earlier, Aaron, about how he wants to put this the stories of the common man on the same level as the stories of kings and of heroes and of knights. Like, which is really a narcissistic impulse. Yeah, because what incredibly. he's saying is he wants his interiority to be special. He's basically reciting the criticism that he wants to receive. He wants people to see his work and say, That's "Oh, he, exactly put, right. he put the common man on the same level as a king." It's like he, he's just—he will never be satisfied with his own work because he is his, like he has no uh, referent for it. He just wants to be seen as the thing that he already thinks he is, right? And, and the the reality is that there is the gaping maw inside him, right? That the abyss is what is right. actually the interior, the life of the mind is this. It's this horror. It's, it's the pus coming off of the walls or oh. the mosquito in the room. Um, and, and that's what torments us and like creates that pain. Um, we should get into, uh, maybe the ending, right? Where it turns out that, um, Charlie Meadows is madman Munt, um, yeah. a serial killer. Um, so this common man that he thought he knew, uh, this archetype, is in fact a, a man who kills women and cuts their heads off. The Chinese, the, like mm-hmm. no, I don't know, why I was going to say this Chinese. The um, the chickens come home to roost with that story because with the story of Carl be- uh, Carl Mund because Carl um, Mund- earlier in the movie. Barton Fink is always cutting him off when he's like, "Oh, I could tell you stories." And you imagine like if they got drunk enough, if they talked long enough. Mm-hmm. Carl Munt would probably, like, Charlie would probably say, I've killed people to, because he sees... Those were the stories he was going to tell. That's the story of the common man, right? And then later in the movie, after he's cut off every opportunity for Charlie to tell him his stories and tell him that he's Carl Munt, he is now, like, reaping the the, the consequences of that decision. And because the, the irony is also that Carl Munt is the common man, right? Like, yeah, I don't and think he just this movie is saying that, that he's not. I think he's saying that, in fact, this is what a common man looks like. Mm-hmm. Like, in fact, like, Barton, like, that interiority you're looking for isn't what you thought it was. <laughs> um, because uh, Munt, sort of like uh, Taylor, but she, they, both these characters truly understand human interiority in a way that Barton Fink never did. They just have opposite feelings about it. There's right? that line that John, uh, that uh, Charlie keeps reciting where he's like, God, people in this world can be so cruel. <laughs> yeah, well, and he says... Uh, tears me up inside to think about what people are going through, how trapped they are. I understand it. I feel for them. So I try to help them out. And his version of helping them out is removing their heads. <laughs> um, but yeah. he's doing more than Martin Fink is. <laughs> I think it's very pointed that uh, he he says his name is Charlie Meadows and then his actual name is Carl Munt. Carl Munt. Like a very classical European name, I would mm-hmm. say. Um, and that he is kind of putting up this veneer uh, of this kind of... Apple pie American. Apple pie American. Yeah, I mean, again, you know, this is set in 1941. Um, there's a scene with, uh, it like, kind of like this this Navy, Army, Air Force dance uh, oh, that yeah. Barton goes to with kind of these classic good old American boys. This is after he's finished his first draft. Yeah, and it's like a dance scene, and it's, it is it is very othering for him because it's very clear he doesn't fit in, right? Um, and it ends with him getting punched in the face by one of the kind of working men. One of the Navy, yeah. Um, I, I think there is like a, a kind of very subtle theme of um, like ethnic identity um, and it, as that how that relates to Barton's own Jewish identity. I think this movie is 
very much mm-hmm. concerned with Jewish identity in the way that a serious man is too. It's just much more subtle about it. Well, there's uh, most of the people that he works with and around in Hollywood are are Jewish people, right? The yeah. uh, Ben Geisler and then his um, uh, what is the character's name? Lou. Do you mean Lou Jack Breeze? Lipnick? Lou Breeze is also Jewish, I believe. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, John Polito. Yeah, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But I was thinking about Jack Lipnick, played by Michael Lerner. Um, they're both like very openly, flagrantly like uh, Jewish folk that they're taught. Like they're yeah. using. Frankly, they're using a lot of very Jewish-focused yeah. slurs to refer to each other um, in sort of that covert prestige type way. Uh, so yeah, it, it's it's not something that I pick up on so much, except for, as like set dressing. But do you see something more there? Um, yeah, I mean, I think this movie is is very purposefully set in 1941. It is set on a time when a lot of Jews were, let's just say, going through some pretty harsh shit, right? Um, and Barton Fink is. I'm sorry. That that's one of the finest understatements ever. <laughs> that is maybe the largest. Man, the, We're feeling pretty the down. The 1940s, a real. Uh, th- Jewish people were really going through it. Yeah. They got low for a while. Um, yes, I mean, Adolf Hitler, right, is in power. World yeah, War yeah. II is going yes. on. This is in the midst of the Holocaust. Um, and uh, I think Barton Fink, uh, as a character who is concerned with the suffering of the common man, yet oh. pretty deaf to anything actually happening in the world at that moment. Um, I think it is very purposeful. On the, I think the, the film very purposefully keeps that very understated yeah, yeah. while hinting at That's it quite a, really a bit. That's a good point. Um, you actually pulled, pulled that right from like I was not with you with like one assertion. Well, that so makes I mean, we talked me. about it beforehand, but the so the two detectives that come around uh, are named uh, Detective Mastrianati, Mastrianati, and, and Detective Deutsch. <laughs> like literally, like uh, the German detective and the Italian detective, two of the fascist uh, powers during World War II. Um, they they are extremely in- anti-Semitic towards Barton Fink. They come uh, by to investigate the murder of Audrey Taylor. Yeah, and and they reference the hotel. They say, "Oh, yeah, this hotel's not segregated, is it?" You know what I mean? Um, and there's a lot of anti-Semitism, not just uh, by the detectives, but the the Jewish people that he works with in the industry as well. Um, mm-hmm. Whenever they don't get their way, it's, they yeah. throw about slurs. Yeah, left anti-Semitism and right. is is like definitely a prevailing motif in this movie. Yeah. It definitely speaks to the theme that you're getting at. Yeah, um, and it should be brought up as well. Uh, homophobia is uh, a theme as well. Oh. Uh, this this movie is very much about the homophobic, racist, anti-Semitic attitudes of uh, a lot of the people that, that yeah, worked in, in Hollywood and, and the value yeah. system of cap- yeah capitalism, and also like specifically um, studio production. Right, like nobody cares about uh, like the actual ideas of the movies. They care about making money. Mm-hmm. Um, and they don't actually care about Barton Fink, even though they ostensibly, like, they pretend they to. They kiss his feet, literally. And yeah. Yet, yeah. Um, Cody, you've been quiet. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just uh, that's, taking that's a, a sip of coffee. That's a very heavy here. one to just ask him to, um, hey, Cody, what are your thoughts <laughs> hey, on the uh, worldwide suffering of the Jewish population? Uh, no, it works. It, like, it kind of eases into, uh, just like the, the thing, especially that first... Um, Michael Lerner, that Jack Lipnick sequence where they are um, figuratively kissing his feet and not literally kissing his feet yet. Um, uh, And I assume this was an issue then. I wasn't alive then, but it's definitely an issue in modern Hollywood of the like um, grasping onto one artist's like singular work and expecting them to produce for you in a way that they want. Um, There are many many examples um but like 
someone like Josh Trank, who did the movie Chronicle, just like a moderately low-budget, very successful, very bankable film, is asked to like head a tentpole <laughs> franchise in the Fantastic Four series. Uh, um, it was poopy. Yeah, and wanted uh, to make a Cronenberg body horror film. Wait, what? Then, yeah, you didn't hear about that. That's what he, his he early drafts for that movie were like. Yeah, like body horror, like Mister Fantastic's and, arm. You know, ooh. yeah, it was supposedly he wanted to make like kind of like a horror movie uh, that delved into like the, right. those kind of. And then themes. the producers just wanted it to be like a wrestling picture. And they're like, about hey, men you fuck yourself, Josh. No, we <laughs> don't want that. It's interesting how they frame um, the producers gaining ownership over um, Barton's IP as like identity or agency destroying. Yeah, there's a line that says, "Right now, the contents of your head are the property of Capital Pictures." Um, property belong like heads being property that belong to people is like a pretty obvious prevailing motif literalized when Munt mm-hmm. cuts off Taylor's head c- keeps it in a box and tells him that it belongs to him or lies he says later it was a lie but and Barton Fink carries it around for Charlie um, Charlie says everything a man wants to keep for a lifetime and he can fit it all in a little box like that and it's a box containing uh, Taylor's head um, we never see it, but and again, it, it, it actually it, it it is the thing that allows him to write to finish his screenplay yes. for mm-hmm. the movie, which is supposedly not what the studios wanted. But he, you know, he sets the box on the once he owns the head on the table, right. and he doesn't know it's a head, but um, it it kind of gives him the inspiration, right? Like it is this idea that her character is like kind of secretly like in big air quotes, like the muse for a lot of these like mm-hmm. great authors yes. and what have you. Again, but it's actually she her. has the actual like she has the talent, yeah, right. In a lot of ways, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, the and Im- the way oh. that the talent manifests, uh, again, another through line in Serious Man, is just fucking caring about people yeah. as human beings and meeting them on their terms, which is something that, that these characters are fundamentally incapable of, uh, it seems. Uh, I liked how the um, head box uh, is kind of a foil for, um, like, when Barton first arrives at the hotel and he's asked if he has more luggage... Um, pretty sure Barton Fink just lies and says like, "Oh yeah, it's, it's being, getting it's being sent up yeah. or whatever." Right? Well, it's like literally the only thing he owns is his typewriter. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's a suitcase with clothes and his typewriter. Right. Yeah. Um, I I also like how when that box is introduced in the scene, this is post obviously Audrey dying and Charlie helping him clean it up. He says, "I'm heading out of town for a few days. Would you take this? this is very important to me. It's all the things that I care about in the world." And it's 100 percent clear to the audience that this is the head in a box. Right? The box is never oh, yeah. opened to yeah. the end of the movie. But it's like, another it's never open at all, actually. The, right? yeah. the, the weight of the box that's set on the nightstand is, like, perfectly about, like, 8 to 10 pounds. Oh, yeah. It's... And then he picks it up later and shakes it, and there's, like, this dull thud, and you get, like, the weight of it in John Turturro's arms. It's perfect. It's Alfredo Garcia's head, like, 100%. <laughs> yeah. uh, Which, wow, another yeah. banger of a movie. Um, it's <laughs> Man, I've been thinking a lot about um, about the way that, that Jewish identity works into this i'm struggling to reconcile that but that's a really fascinating through line um i think that that another way that it's set and i obviously can't speak to jewish identity but sure. the reason i think a big reason why this is set in 1941 is to to frame it and sort of um center it in a tradition of modernism um, yeah. and modernism leading into postmodernism. um existentialism arose after world war ii largely um and like the reason we talked about this a little bit in the man who wasn't there, but like one of the prevailing reasons why existentialism became a thing was this sort of fundamental um, loss of faith in the idea of um, 
history as a, a, a straight line, as leading mm. towards something, right? Yeah. Like in, in pessimism about the idea or the, the fundamental possibility of human uh, community, of yeah. interiority, of sort of like shared experiences, those things were breaking down. And so this is sort of like a postmodernist like take on the depicting like that the the foundation of that pessimism like 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 um Martin Fink is such a pre-modern person in the in the sense that like he he categorizes people in these broad categories as having shared life experiences and having those those uh experiences represent an interiority that he can comprehend and depict mm-hmm. and this movie is so much about the the coming loose of, or like the the coming away of that is is like actually like you can't understand the interiority of people or if you can it's horrifying and what that interiority is only madness right, right? Um, what he thinks he's doing and what he's do- actually doing are two different things like, right yeah he, he thinks he's representing he thinks he's sharing he thinks he's amplifying but he's just commodifying he's just using it to gild his own lily right that's, and that's another phrase <laughs> Yeah, come on, guys. Let me let me let me have something. I it sounds sexual, man. I don't know. <laughs> um, and I, I think that that like that can that can work as a as a criticism of of art in art's inability to or disinterest in actually affecting change. Right? Like, mm-hmm. uh, I think that that like you said, he he's uninterested in the plight of um, the people he yeah. is closest to. Oh, um, yeah. Is art a religion in this movie in the way that that Judaism is a religion in uh, uh, it's Man? affecting a similar thing, right? Mm-hmm. It, it's about these movies really are responsibility. These movies really are cousins in more ways than I, I think thought. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think a lot of Coen Brothers movies are very. They're often not very subtle, but I think they are often very subtle about how important, like the time period that their movies yeah. are set in impacts what they're talking about. Yeah, I didn't um, think at all about, like, the fact that World War II was going on while, while this movie yeah. was, is being set. Like, it's never called into the, like, text of the movie. I don't uh, think they ever referenced the second to last scene, um, the producer of Capital Pictures he's, is... Yeah. Oh, he he's, he, yeah, he, he volunteers. Joins. He is wearing uh, full army gear. Also, wearing he, a costume. Yeah. he attains um, colonel rank in the U.S. military because of a friend. Um, so, like, there's a good nepotism. Yeah. Um, do you think that at least in, in my opinion, what I'm reading, I guess now to, to attempt to reconcile these threads that we have going, is that Barton thinks this is a this is an existence precedes essence argument, um, but um, that that Barton thinks callousness toward the actual circumstances surrounding him created the interiority of his character being the abyss that it is. Like, do you think that the reason why this movie is the sort of nihilist movie it is? alleging that there is nothing inside of people except for like this this terror this the pus right the the um abyss is because he never looked outside of himself and only um was interested in proving his own exceptionalism i think that's what drove him to writing probably right like as a person as a character yeah i like where do you where do you think that the how do we get here i guess Hmm. Uh, and it seems like, to me at least, it was the narcissism of, of Barton Fink, right? And of, of what that represents. Mm-hmm. Not only of him, but of all of the people in this movie. Of the studio executives, of the um, anti-Semitic detectives, of um, especially W.P. Mayhew. Like, this is this is about an ideology of exceptionalism and solipsism. And what that leads to, and what it leads to is horror, is mm-hmm. the... the 
pus underneath the walls. What do you think about that? Um, I don't know. I, I kind of feel maybe this movie is arguing that um, maybe this movie is super nihilistic and just saying that like you never can truly understand what other people are going through other than yourself, right? Right. I mean, that's more agnostic, though. I mean, like, I think that, that the nihilism is like, you can. It's just horror. It, it's it's that, that people are monsters inside, right? Yeah. Like, that's the... <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know if I agree with that, necessarily. No, I don't um, necessarily do either, right? Um, I think there is another, well, not another version of this movie, but another universe where uh, Barton chooses to remain on Broadway and write like very surface level takes of what uh, what those what those classes of people, what the common man is, uh, to feed the 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 uh, egos of the elite who will watch these works on Broadway and applaud him for convincing themselves that they have a better understanding of what that part of society and what that part of the world is like. And I think Barton has a very good career doing that. Like, he's a very fondly remembered writer for being that type of mm-hmm. artist. Right. Well, he's, he's again, to get back to it, to get back to exactly what I was saying earlier, he's commodifying the stories of the common man for, clearly, like, he would rather it not be for a critical audience or right. for, like, high society. But those are the ones that we see praise from, exactly. right? Like, he's the intro scene is him getting praise in, like, a really swanky nightclub mm-hmm. from a bunch of rich-looking people. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I I love the idea that that this is it's supposed to be a process that flows in one direction, right? Mm-hmm. And from inside Barton, he is going to to cr- like take the beauty inside of himself and make it manifest in in reality via his writing. And in fact, the sort of like very colonial, very um, exceptionalist method by which he thinks he can do that, he thinks he can he can take his interiority and project it onto reality and make reality the way he wants it to be um, is affecting his interiority instead. It's making it the world a shittier place. that polarity, right? Yeah. But, but not only it makes this... It makes the world a shittier place because it, inside him, he is shitty. Mm-hmm. And so, like, like, the projection that he's actually creating is vomit, right? Like, he, he's, <laughs> he's, he's projecting his interiority and his interiority is evil and the reason his interiority is evil is because he wants to project it so so there's an interesting um i brought up the hollow man earlier but like there's uh that the line in that is like between conception and creation falls the shadow um and like this movie seems to be arguing against that and that's the modernist take is that like you have an idea but something always gets in the way Mm -hmm. and in this movie, it seems to be suggesting that the idea itself is the evil thing. Yeah. So it's not about the, the bridge between what is and, and or what you want and what is. It's about what you want. Being, yeah. It's, it's yeah. that that process itself is evil. It is is something not worth. Um, yeah. I guys, I think it's time to strap on your helmet uh, lamps and uh, descend. Take out your pickaxes and, and no, ascend. I, I think I see light. I think it's time to, to head right back out of the tape mines. Can, can I say one or two more things real quick? Do it. Um, so I was just going to say, I think it's pointed um, just when I think I'm out. Yeah, I pull you back in. Sorry. Um, Get back down in the mines. So, yeah, I, I don't uh, I don't think that, that Barton Fink is maybe as maybe autobiographical 
maybe some other people here. I guess I don't know what the the taste well, on that. I don't want to put any words. It's in your taken. Mouth, but. It's taken to an extreme, obviously an absurd extreme. Yeah. But it is. It is born from I think the Cohen's own self loathing. I, I think it is his take on writing itself. Yeah, yeah I Go think ahead. it is maybe a bit of a that hatred's maybe a big word, but it is maybe a general dislike towards the the kind of artists that maybe they've they've seen here and there. I mean, I think it's very pointed that Barton Fink is not a person who writes movies, right? Like, he wrote a play and then is kind of shipped over to Hollywood to write movies, right? And there's a scene where he's talking to, I think it's a Lerner. Yeah, I think it's I think it's Jack, Lit- Jack, Jack Litnick, Litnick. Is he the studio head? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, he's talking Litnick to him, and, and he says something like, uh, you know, how are you going to do it this way? Are you going to do it this way? And he's like, oh, you know what? Actually, you don't want to know any of that movie jargon. You're a writer. Why don't you just go write? Yeah. It's like this idea that, like, this guy does not actually know anything about the film industry, but wants to work in that capacity and mm-hmm. to tell good stories, but does not actually do any of the work to get there in a way that the Coen brothers were making home films when they were, like, 12, right? Like, they grew up in this shit. They were making short films. They made a very critically acclaimed directorial debut. They write all their own films, and they don't write plays. They don't write novels, right? Um, And I think there's maybe a bit of a criticism there of the idea of this kind of universal artist who is able to just um, bring their soul forward because they're just that good. That's just fundamentally uninteresting to me, right? Like, like I think that that it's it's hypocritical, too, right? Like, Like, the idea that, like, oh, our art is good because, like, we're actually in it. Like, that doesn't seem to square with the criticism in this movie, which is which is about how, like, attempting to speak for the common man will end in horror, right? right. I don't know. I just, like, like, that, I can see that reading, but it's just, like, it's, it's so... It, the scope doesn't seem to reconcile with, with how um, brutal this movie is. Yeah, it's pretty brutal. I, I yeah. just like like it, it. If not, I don't know. Uh, that that just seems like that seems like such a, a specific and uninteresting um, like criticism coming from the Collins, don't you think? I don't know. I mean, I, there's other stuff there too. Um, I mean, like if it's just a piss take on the the upper class, like it's fine, you know. Like, but but that doesn't seem like the kind of movie that this is because like it's we're following a member of it and like we're supposed to sympathize in some way with that yeah and i don't know yeah i I mean again i i don't think it's like a hate necessarily but i think it is a very very deep criticism uh of a person like barton fink um who again is kind of one note right like we haven't talked about on the podcast but the the script he ends up writing is basically kind of a rehash of the script that he wrote for one of his plays in New York, right? Mm-hmm. Like, he's not actually talented. He hasn't really put in the work. It's kind of a fluke, right, and, to and a certain extent. That's his, his deep anxiety is that what if uh, I only had one idea? What if there's only one idea inside me? Uh, and I after that, I was done being a writer. And it turns out that maybe that's true, and maybe that's true of, like, everyone who wants this process. Yeah. Because, I've, I've definitely thought that. Because maybe being a good writer is about looking outside yourself. You fuck, <laughs> uh, which is which is why it speaks to, to me so much, and like why I maybe I'm projecting, but like maybe I I, I feel like that's what the Coens are. are the Coen brothers need to themselves. step outside of their comfort zone and make the next James Bond film. I have petition for this. Uh, now, uh, so maybe this will transition to kind of the ending here. Uh, one other thing is that the Coen brothers have spoken about making a sequel to this. It's one of their only movies that they've 
they've talked about they they said that they would call it it, uh, old fink and that it would be once John Turturro got like much older and was like an old man that they would make a sequel to it. He is a very old man now. He's like 70. I think they said they're waiting for him to get older and like two years ago. So maybe they're just really waiting for it. Doink. Um, Sorry, go ahead. I like like where this movie leaves us. I was just going to say that I like the final scene where uh, we see uh, Barton, he gets to a beach. Um, There's a image of this um, a woman sitting on sand looking out uh, across the water. There's this picture hanging above his desk and that symbolizes some kind of general ambition that he or maybe his like image of success uh kind of embodied in this the picture beauty of life yeah something that he's trying to achieve um he uh so this is after you know he lipnik has his soul um so he trudges out to the beach i think he's got his uh his typewriter with him I could, he's, no, he's, he's got, got the, the head. He's got, he's got the, the head. It, yeah. Even better. Uh, uh, it, it's worth pointing out that yeah. at one point, Barton Fink says, "Where there's life, there's hope." Um, mm-hmm. I think that that's kind of what the image mm-hmm. represents. But yeah, no, totally. Um, no, that's a good point. And he he goes out. Uh, eventually, a woman comes and meets him. They have uh, a bit of a conversation. He says he's in the movies. Um, I think this is the last exchange of the movie. Um, he says uh, he tells this woman that she's very beautiful and that she should be in the pictures. No, no. You, what? Did you miss it? No. What? What do you mean in the pictures? Like the, like he should, like she should be in movies. Am I misremembering? No. He says, "Are you in pictures?" Oh, are you? Like, are oh, yeah, you the you're woman right, in right, the right. pictures? Like yeah, it's a double entendre, right? Oh. Like, are you the woman in the picture? Like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Photos. That's a good she point. said, "Don't she, be silly." Yeah, don't be silly. Yeah. And then yeah, and we then. see a seagull. Flying overhead, just like it shot. is mm-hmm. in the—it's one of my favorite shots. Yeah, it's great. Um, flying over, just like it is in the picture. Only just when it reaches the point that it is in the image, it falls dead right out of the sky. No, it, I think uh, I think it's I think it dies for a fish. Yeah, I think it, it, I think it surfaces no, it and does. sits there for a second. It, it dies for a fish. I'm pretty oh, sure. Hey, except the mystery. Oh, yeah, good point. That way. Well, it kills something. Then. Different episode. You know what I'm trying to fucking. I, I know what you're trying to. Say. I I interpreted oh, that as one of those fish or uh, birds that like dives for its prey and yeah. like which is also a good image. Both of them are yeah. great. Both those interpretations. Are, are we out of the take minds? Yeah. Okay. Uh, did you guys? Uh, did you pause at the Nebuchadnezzar? Um, yeah, I did. Moment. <laughs> I did. That's a really good. Uh, he flips from <laughs> just as a continuity thing. He flips. From, it's probably just him being manic. Flips from Daniel to Genesis without like turning a single page. I think that's just a fun, a fun uh, editing cut. W. P. Mayhew's most famous book, which was actually written by Audrey Taylor, is called Nebuchadnezzar. Mm-hmm. He opens up the uh, passage in the Bible, and it reads, "And the king Nebuchadnezzar mm-hmm. answered and said to the Chaldeans, I recall not my dream, and if ye make it known, if ye will not make it known unto me, my dream." and its interpretation you shall be cut in pieces and of your tents shall be made a dunghill which is really thematically yeah. purposeful for this movie strong um, um, we talked about John Polito very briefly um, he's in this movie as Lou Breeze who I believe is like a former studio head who was uh, like the studio got bought out and his role could have been eliminated entirely he could have been fired but he was kept on as kind of a uh and an underling to Lipnick. Not very realistic nowadays. Yeah. They would have fired him. Right. Yeah. Um, they would have cut his head off. Uh, his role reminds me a lot of um, Adam Driver's in Inside Lewin Davis. I just imagine, hmm. like, oh, John, oh. John, uh, Lou Breeze back home has a... Uh, yeah, he, like, right. I mean, Adam Inside Lewin Davis is a movie about a musician. Um, <laughs> Adam Driver's character is... Yeah, he's... Um, 
He's this guy who's got he's back at his apartment. He's got uh, a case of his own solo records, uh, and he performs like a very insignificant part of well, it's a significant part, Imo, but the insig- please, Mr. Kennedy. In any case, um, yeah, I don't know. It made me think of Inside Lewin Davis, which I, I love. wish the Trilon would show Inside Lewin Davis. I love that movie so much. Shout out to the Trilon, which should show Inside Lewin Davis. Trilon, if you're listening, show Inside Lewin Davis. Not. Nobody is. I wonder Martin sometimes. Fink. Life isn't beautiful, and neither are you. I'm I'm beautiful. Thank you for listening to Try Love. Uh, I'm Jason. I'm beautiful. I'm Harry. I'm Aaron. Join us next time. Hi. Found a minute. <laughs> <laughs>